2: hello and welcome to scram the podcast passionate about the scottish food and drink scene i'm your host rosalind erskine and on this episode you'll be learning all about gin how it's made the very colorful history of gin and more specifically we'll be looking at edinburgh gin which is fast becoming an institution in the gin world I spent a day in Edinburgh learning all about it, starting with a very early gin tasting with Philip Kingscott, Edinburgh Gin's experiential ambassador. It took place at Edinburgh's Botanical Gardens, and we were joined by Dr Greg Kinneser, who has been instrumental in the development of their 1670 edition. I was pretty amazed by Greg and Philip's knowledge, which ranges from hallucinogenic herbs to international trade wars.
0: My name's Philip. I'm the brand ambassador for Edinburgh Gin. And I basically just get paid to talk about and drink gin all the time. Literally the best job in the world, I think. Edinburgh Gin. We are obviously from Edinburgh and we wanted a gin that really reflected the city. And I would say of all the gins that we do, this is the one that's got the most Edinburgh in it. It's got some key botanicals in here are from the Botanic Garden where we are right now. Like a lot of good ideas, this started out with just a a chat over a few drinks with... Ewan, it, was it Alex Nicol, our, our founder? Yeah, um, or was it with well, Dave? I was or
3: originally with Dave, the yeah. master distiller. And it was incredible to work with Dave to be able to produce this gin because it, it's like a real throwback to the origin of the gin uh, in that it's a bit kind of alchemical. It's mm-hmm. like this kind of old medieval chemistry seems to be how gins pulled together. And learning about that
0: was fascinating. Yeah. Dave and Greg had... Uh, a chat over a few drinks, and a few days later, Greg pitches up at the distillery with a Tesco bag full of suspicious-looking herbs. And yeah, after, and I th- I now Dave can correct me on this, but I think it was about 32 test distillations right. that we came up with, with the final recipe on 1670. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, best noise, let's, uh, have a little taste. So I'll just pass this round. What I'd like you to do, and this might be a fairly new sensation for some of you, we're not gonna add tonic or anything else just now. We're actually just gonna get to grips with the spirit itself. So when you've got it in your glass there, first off, smell it. Now it is 43%, so if you bring it right up to your nose, you're probably just gonna get the, the burn of the spirit. So instead, bring it up to your nose, but breathe in through your mouth instead. And you'll get the flavor of it at the back of your palate without getting that kind of burn, I suppose and then you're gonna taste it neat. Now, I know that is an unusual thing. I didn't drink neat gin before I worked at Edinburgh Gin Distillery. Well, I did when I was like 17 down the park or whatever, you know, but wasn't being a connoisseur then. You're gonna have a little taste, let it sit in your tongue for about 10 seconds, let it go all around your palate and then swallow. And don't just think about, you know, the taste, think about the texture of the gin. Where are you getting it? On the tip of your tongue, middle of your tongue, back of your tongue, roof of your mouth, where's it lingering, all these things. What are you getting? I mean, even just on the smell, there is, there's a lot going on. And I, I don't know about you, but for me, it's, it, it's not the most obviously ginny gin. We'll talk a bit more about the juniper in a bit, but obviously, you know, yeah, juniper yeah. is that, is that distinctive thing in gin. Obviously that's there, but there's so many other things going on as well. If you haven't already, um, give it a wee sip. Personally, and this is just me, I get a kind of a peppery sensation around the sides of my tongue. then that subdues into a kind of basil-y flavour of the roof of my mouth. And then finally, a sweet flavour, kind of fennel flavours coming towards the back of my palate. Which, I mean, this is obviously not a whisky. But it reminds me of a really good single malt whisky in the fact that it's just hitting all these areas of your palate. I mean, we're going to have this with garnish and ice and tonic and stuff but I just generally drink this neat at home I don't actually have anything with this normally so speaking of basil we're going to have some basil in there so take yourself a basil leaf and don't squish it or anything like that literally just stick it in there because if you squish it or muddle it or the basil will just completely take over have a little sip of it neat and, and just see if that's made any difference to it at all I don't want to talk about botanicals too much because that's Greg's department but one of the kind of key botanicals in this is um Tasmanian mountain pepper, Tasmania lancelata. Yes. Uh, And we've obviously got uh, leaves in there and we're going to see the actual plant later. Um, But these are Tasmanian mountain pepper berries and they are really oily. So it's giving a lot of viscosity to the gin. So we're having this in a gin and tonic. I'm going to add some ice and tonic in a sec, but you could actually do a kind of herbal twist on a martini or something like that with it as well, would be really fun. But let's add in some ice and we'll add in a splash of tonic as well. Um, Why don't we go for the tonic first? I would put in as much tonic as as there is gin or twice as much as there is gin, but no more than that really. And you can pretty much have a, a tin each if you like. There we go, all the tonic. So if anyone would like to try, a Tasmanian mountain pepperberry, feel free. What is it like? like? What would you expect? It's quite spicy. Yeah. It's a good question to ask before you taste
3: something. <laughs> you won't die. <laughs> so they're a really interesting plant. They're very, very primitive things and lots of these kind of quite primitive plants that evolved a long time ago. They're defending themselves against beetles. So it tastes of beetle poison is one way of thinking of it (laughs) but that's just basically black pepper is the same and a whole host of other flavors that we eat are actually poisons for insects and things like that kind of thing so every botanical that you have has an element of that as well
0: and other botanical while we're chatting about those obviously as we said this earlier juniper is what makes gin gin we don't use scottish juniper in our gin because the climate here not the most reliable so the uh we were trying the Tasmanian mounted pepper as well Do we swallow it? No You can Have a wee nibble, um, have a nibble. You eat don't eat have to eat the whole Don't be a hero <laughs>
2: <laughs> It's really peppery It's quite nice though It's like almost like Kind of nutty as well
3: And did you get a delay? Did you get a weird kind of I don't quite know how it works But you get that kind of Two, three second delay And then it comes in and you think you'll never taste anything again because it gets quite strong. <laughs> It'll go in.
0: Yeah. For me, the leaf is an even more intense version of that, I would yeah, yeah. say. Probably because it's fresh off the plant yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah.
2: Have some gin to take this. <laughs>
0: so the first year we made this, I think I'm right in saying, we like nearly stripped the <laughs> Tasmanian round pepper bush. So we now don't use berries from the bush here. We get those flown in from Tasmania. Um, so it's just the leaf from the plant that we're using here instead. That's right. Yeah. So
3: it's berries that are imported anyway into the UK for commercial purposes. So you can actually buy it in various uh, delis and places as well if you want to use it for cooking. It's really an interesting
0: flavour. And the Latin name is Tasmania lancelata. So you can remember that when you're showing off about them later. And you sound like you're really knowledgeable. The big year for it was supposed to be 2020 because that yeah. was the big anniversary for the botanics. But something else happened that year. <laughs>
3: It's tied into the background of the garden here. as a physic garden, so a kind of a garden for medicine and for um, learning as well. So doctors and physicians were educated here when the garden was first set up, up near the castle as well. So lots of the botanicals in there tie back to that as well, these these medicinal elements.
0: The botanical gardens here, I think, are one of the oldest in Europe. I think they're like second or third or something like that, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: So they're the second oldest in Mm. Britain, But there are older gardens through Italy and Holland as well. And what would happen is many of the doctors would head off to the continent, of course, train up, learn all about botanicals and how to use them for treating medicine. And that's how the birth of medicine really happened. Modern medicine was through physic gardens like this. So this kind of commemorates all that work that was done. It's interesting when you compare with the other botanic gardens around the UK, many of them have produced gins, but we have blind tasting things at every botanic gardens conference. And which one comes out on top every time? (laughs) You can guess, it's 1670, it's quite nice. There's a huge range of different plants in the garden here. We've got one of the best collections in the world in terms of plant diversity. And there's so many beautiful scents and fragrances in the leaves and the fruits and everything. We had a good feel for what to go around. And actually what I did with Dave was we went for a big tour of the garden, taking bits off, and Dave would have a smell and think, okay, that could work. And he took loads and loads of stuff away distilled it through and a whole host of amazing smelling stuff just disappears in the still and you lose that flavour completely so we distilled it down if you pardon the pun into a a subset and there's a wonderful thing called Dorifera sassafras in the glass houses absolutely beautiful big tree loads of leaves it's got this beautiful bubblegum smell and Dave was incredibly excited about it so we put a bit of that through the still I did a bit more research and found out that the compound the chemical that's in it is actually a precursor for MDMA. So we thought, let's just give that one a miss, you know? Um, So there was all that whole whole process of going through and working out what would work and what wouldn't. But interestingly, that particular tree was a really important component of um, root beers in the past. So when people were drinking root beer, well, you know, they were probably having a bit of MDMA with it as well. Lots of the flavours we have from botanicals for food or anything like that they are, for the plant, ways of defending themselves in many cases. So your lovely mint is to stop it being eaten by beetles as well.
0: I just wanted to quickly talk about Edinburgh gin's connection to the botanics, which, which goes beyond this gin as well. I know our kind of big focus today is on our London dry gins, but it's worth acknowledging probably the most famous thing that Edinburgh gin is well known for is rhubarb and ginger. And that has a really strong connection to Edinburgh and the botanic gardens, mainly because of this rather glamorous fellow here, James Mounsey. So, very brief history on rhubarb. The uh, river Volga in Russia, the Romans called that the rhu. Anybody who lived east of it was considered a barbarian. Rhubarb, plant that grows east of the river Volga. There you go. Used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years, but it starts to become very popular in the kind of 18th century in medicine in Europe. In particular, Dr Gregory's rhubarb powder, invented by Dr James Gregory from Edinburgh. It's a kind of strong Edinburgh connection already. But anyway, as it's becoming popular in the 18th century, the only people who are growing and exporting rhubarb in Europe are the Russians. They control the rhubarb monopoly for Europe. And rhubarb seeds at the time were worth more than their own weight in gold. This is all going on, and the Russians are, as I say, controlling the rhubarb monopoly and using the money from it to fund their wars in Finland and Ukraine. So things really don't change. And uh, at the same time, uh, the Botanic Gardens are really kicking off in a big way in Edinburgh because of John Hope, and we're in a building named after him. And he writes a paper saying that if Britain can break the rhubarb monopoly, it will save the UK economy up to a million pounds a year which is 20 to 30 million in today's money. So there's this real desire to be growing rhubarb here in the UK. And at the same time, Russia ruled by Peter II. Peter II, massive fan of all things Scottish. Peter hires a Scottish physician to be his personal physician, James Mounsey, who was from near Lockerbie. And James has got a great gig. You know, he's, you know, personal physician to the Tsar, really well-paid, you know, real cushy number here. And then Peter is killed, probably assassinated by his wife, Catherine the Great. And James thinks, crap, okay, if I hang around here, I'll probably get assassinated too. So he persuades Catherine that he's really ill and he's going to die, and he has to go back to Scotland to die. And before the night before he leaves, he steals a pound of rhubarb seeds from the botanical gardens in St. Petersburg. He takes them back to Edinburgh, gives them to John Hope, within a year, John Hope is growing 3,000 rhubarb plants uh, in the Botanic Garden in Edinburgh. It breaks the Russian rhubarb monopoly. Way! Um, uh, James is given like a pension and like a medal from the Royal Society I think and like, you know, really kind of awarded for it but he is convinced for the rest of his life he lives another 10 years that he's going to be assassinated by the Russians for having stolen their rhubarb so he sleeps with a loaded pistol beside his bed for the rest of his life. Um, His house he designs so that every room has two doors so if somebody's coming from one direction he can make a quick escape and apparently he fakes his own funeral at one point as well so when we're thinking about gins that encapsulate edinburgh 1670 literally has the botanic gardens in it but it's worth remembering probably our most famous gin also has a very strong connection to edinburgh and the botanic gardens too
3: (laughs) Marvelous! That's the first time I've heard that full story. That's it's great to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: and for a kind
3: of an even more extended modern connection, one of our big research areas is gingers and the diversity of ginger around the world. they're really important as medicines for people throughout the areas they grow in, and we just don't understand much about their biodiversity. Many of them are being lost and going extinct, but the work that's done here in the garden really helps to support keeping these species from going extinct and keeping these important medicines around for people who use them as well. Well, it's
0: a Great. funny plant rhubarb, isn't it? Because the root, brilliant for your bowels. Yep. The actual stalky bit, we call it a fruit, but it's a vegetable. Yep. And the leaf, I mean, they'll kill you if you eat the leaves.
3: Yeah, yeah. Like too much oxalic acid in it. Yeah. That's the one, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I've seen also for ginger as well is another group that we do lots of research on here too.
0: So, I mean, in the 18th century when the botanics was kind of getting going, was there a bit of that going on? Was Edinburgh kind of rival to a lot of other gardens in europe then beautifully it wasn't and that's
3: one of the amazing things i think for botanic gardens is they don't do that we'll be a little bit cheeky about q and they'll be a bit cheeky about us but that's it really and even when there's wars raging all around europe botanists and scientists more widely would make those connections in spite of the wars and that was a key thing particularly for the the later 1700s and 1800s we've got three million dried herbarium specimens here in the garden and they were exchanged and all that research went on in spite of the wars raging around and I think that's a really powerful thing that botanic gardens have done they've kept those
0: connections open. Cool so the gin itself I was talking earlier about kind of my personal taste with it that peppery flavor is the Tasmanian mountain pepper yep. the basil flavor I would say is the piper leaf. I think that's right yeah, yeah. And then, for me, the fennel flavour is the fennel. Yeah. But we were talking about the fact that the kind of the really key botanic garden ones in there are the Tasmanian mountain pepper, the piper leaf and sweet sicily. That's right. And we'll hopefully get out and see
3: sweet sicily. It's a lovely, kind of fluffy member of the carrot family, very soft and with a, a kind of quite mild anise flavour. So even if you don't like strong anise flavours, it's, it's great. It used to be used as a... An additive for sweetening up alcohol and for cooking with as well but one of the key things for it was that the leaves used to be thrown down on the floor before carpeting and when you lived in the house with livestock and you know the cows were coming through the house and you had all your unwashed relatives over you would walk over this beautiful fluffy leaf and that it would waft up this scent and when it was all trampled on you could just sweep it out the door and replace it with new stuff as well. So it was what was called a strewing herb as well as a, a thing that was used for uh, flavouring as well. We've gone for using it as a flavouring rather than a strewing herb here. <laughs> That's cool. And I guess the Tasmanian mountain pepper has got its connection. We have a quite extensive collection of plants from Tasmania. The piper is in the glass houses. That's a piper is what you have. Black pepper is probably the most familiar member of piper as, as a group. So it's got that kind of peppery note in there as well. But the leaf that belongs to the plant that we take it from is a much more kind of complex set of fragrances it's really quite amazing indeed with a hidden undernote
0: of of black pepper in there too i think i we can safely say it's the only gin in the world that uses piper leaf which is very hard these days to find a unique botanical in your gin (laughs) that's right and that particular one's a south american species
3: uh, for that so really quite nice and it's some plants that are growing in the glass houses and then more of them that are growing outside as well. It's also got the kind of classic components, of course, the juniper, that, yeah. that we'll see the plants of those. Uh, a little bit of orris in there as well. So, so the iris root and fennel too.
0: The juniper we're using in the gin I think it's the Italian juniper I'm right in saying on this. So I was kind of just touching upon this earlier. We don't use Scottish juniper because not very much of it grows here and the stuff that does tends to be quite bitter, not always. So we go to Southern Europe and we either go to Italy or to North Macedonia for our juniper. North Macedonian juniper generally tends to be quite sweet, whereas Italian is known for being quite peppery, quite spicy, which ties in really well with the piper, with the Tasmanian mountain pepper, I think it's always interesting seeing these juniper berries. Any of these ones from
3: Mediterranean regions, they are larger than the ones we'll have here in Scotland. Uh, and juniper is a really fascinating species. It's quite rare in Scotland. It's been really heavily hammered by cattle that love to scratch themselves against the spiky leaves. But also, ironically, when people were, had illicit stills in the hills, you could cut down juniper, you could use the berries for flavouring your booze, and you could also burn the wood and the wood doesn't give off any smoke and that means that you would have a still running with no smoke so the excise officers couldn't see where the still was so in some ways the kind of historical kind of underground liquor movement was one that might have actually damaged juniper stocks quite a bit but it's recovering well and and doing well in spite of several diseases that we've seen coming in so there's big programmes to try and restore it in
0: the hills. I've read that there's, there's thinking anyway that the earlier versions of what we now call Scotch were much closer to gin. I mean, juniper green in Edinburgh, yeah. tomaton whisky, that's Gallic, for hill of the juniper. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, gin has a much older history in Scotland than people realise, yeah. I think.
3: It's really interesting all the other botanicals that people add into whisky as well. There's lots of really interesting historical accounts of you'd have your, your basic whisky... Um, with all of its profiles but then on top of that you'd add in some really interesting other plants as well to flavour them up. Some of which we've done quite a bit of research on and I wouldn't touch them with a barge (laughs) pole if I was you, they're just way too dangerous you know but people lived shorter lives but maybe more enjoyable, who knows.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We took to the gardens to see just what went into the gin and where I was convinced to try some more ingredients.
3: This is the demonstration garden and it's got things like just over here couldn't have chosen better there's our rhubarb tucked over in the corner there hey. <laughs> so this is all part of a fruit garden and we tried a few bits of fruits but we probably wouldn't have had big enough yields to be able to make things but this is, this is a lovely patch of the kind of main medicinal rhubarb sitting here So really important for Edinburgh Gin, a really strong connection to the garden, but not a key component of the 1670, which is what we're looking at um, mostly today. So we'll we'll trundle around and see some of our ingredients. Just over here, we have actually the the kind of modern physic garden. So this is a a colleague and her students have developed a whole host of really interesting plantings that are all medicinal plants. So ones that were used uh, through history through particularly the kind of development of modern medicine as well, but into the modern day as well. So lots of these are current uh, herbal, medicinal treatments. And among them, we have things like fennel just over here. So we can go and grab a bit of that. So this is a really tall, kind of quite slender plant with incredibly fluffy feathery leaves and these kind of umbrella-like tops of yellow flowers. Take a bit, you can grab some flowers and crush them up and have a smell of them if you like, or take a bit of leaf. But often the flowers are, are quite good, or these fruits up here at the top. So this is actually a fairly common ingredient. So just grab a little bit of the flowers, squish them up and have a whiff. it's that anise smell underneath. Mm, oh wow. Yeah, yeah. that's um, Very, very oily and used widely in herbal medicine, but also of course in conventional cooking as well, and a kind of classic <laughs> thing for, for several gins as well. It's one of the kind of ingredients you'll find in quite a number of gins because it, it gives that punch straight through. It's lovely.
2: So when you're cooking, it's obviously not the flowers, it's the seeds? Yeah,
3: exactly. So that's these things. So these yellow bits here that we can see, that's the flowers with their yellow petals. And then these ones that have gone a bit duller, darker green, and look like little upside-down teardrops, these are the fruits developing. So a little bit later in the season, they'll go and turn into these brown things that you use for, for cooking. So you can see how much one plant produces. It's thousands upon thousands of seeds, so enough to sit in your spice drawer for years on end if I know how fennel works in my house, to be honest. It's cool. um, Sambuca is the official tasting note from the, oh. um, from the group. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely, that's it. What I really love is how sambuca is flavoured up with anise from a very, very different source as well. Plenty of fennel in there too, but you've got a whole host of different plants, totally unrelated to each other, that have all invented this same smell. Okay, so this is a member of the carrot family, and it's as different from something like licorice. I guess licorice and anise is similar kind of smells. It's as different from licorice maybe as we are from frogs, something like that kind of thing. (laughs) But it's as if both of these things have invented that same smell, that same compound, because it must work for keeping away their herbivores. Does that make you feel weird that all the food that you're eating and all the lovely flavours you're enjoying, or most of them, are just poisons for insects (laughs) We pop round and we'll see our juniper a profusion of lots and lots of flowers here that are usually cornflower weeds this one here however is borage so one of the classic things that you stick in your pims and Mm. similar stuff as well we've got over here various poppies with their beautiful red kind of like soft petals and just in front that greyer poppy there is a lovely opium poppy. Okay so maybe not for for drinks, but um, <laughs> it wouldn't actually produce any opium this far north at all. I but we've got yeah, tucked in there. There's a little fluffy leaf there. that looks like a little sort of broad feather, and it is licorice. So we've got quite a lot of licorice that pops up once you plant it. You can't get it out again. It's a real, real vigorous weed. Great for bees and superb broadly for for biodiversity. But this bit here is our garnishes bed. So you've got sage. You've got rosemary with these lovely kind of of nearly spiky little slender leaves. Uh, We've got things like oregano, marjoram, we've got lavender here too. Bees just love this whole area, it's superb. So we'll run over and we'll have a quick look at our juniper. Yes, please. If that suits, which is just (laughs) down this way. Just tucked under here, we've got several different juniper plants, okay? And if you remember, one of the key things is like many organisms, they've got separate male and female plants. But if you look at something like a birch tree, like this pendulous birch here, this is male and female at the same time. Okay. But a few plants, like juniper, have separate male and female. And it's only the female that produces the berries, or cones. If you look at this, is a really nice contrast here. We've got this really spiky shrub, with the lovely sort of uh, maroon-coloured branches through there. They both look very similar, both are male and female, but that key difference is the berries on the female there. Okay, so these are actually cones and it's spiky, but if you want to just take one off, or I can pass them over if you want. But there we go, and they're quite hard. So they might need a bit of a kind of, might need a bit of a kind of crush with a nail or something like that kind of thing. There's nothing else like that. And it's an amazing kind of flavor profile that totally defines gin. That's what you need to make a gin, a gin is that juniper. It's amazing, isn't it? It seems to be doing okay. There's good conservation measures in place to try and make sure it's surviving well out there in the wild. So I was just up in Mercus up in Cairngorm, and just to see the wild juniper forest sitting underneath the Scots pine, it just, yeah, it's heartening to see. It's really great. So I just zipped back up here to have a look, to see if we could find the sweet sicily often here and in the bed behind but as you can see there's nothing growing (laughs) and that's because it's got a relatively early season plant so it's been very very dry and I'll bet that the the plants just disappeared so it's under the ground and it'll be back up again next spring Um, we can dig down and make use of the, the roots as well and the kind of underground parts of the plant, they've got lots of that kind of flavor in there too. But it's one of the key things for gins is that seasonality is one of the big challenges. If you're trying to get fresh ingredients in particular, you have to make sure you can time it so you can get hold of them and be reliant on the weirdness of the weather nowadays for keeping the plants alive.
0: It's interesting because we we distill it seasonally for that very reason. And the first year that we made it, David made his batch, very happy with it. And then somebody quite high up in the company was like, great news, I've just sold 5,000 bottles to John Lewis. And Dave was like, I haven't got 5,000 bottles to spare. So we had to go back and distill it with plants much later in the year. And all the amounts changed because, yeah, plants changed their flavor over the course Absolutely. of a season as well. Right. Yeah. The whole flavor profile just shifts as you're going through. And
3: finding that out was really intriguing as well. It's great.
2: I asked Greg about how much of the ingredients of the 1670 came from the gardens.
3: Coriander, we grow here. Again, that's a seasonal plant actually, so we wouldn't see any of that until a wee bit later on. The sweet sicily, the orris, I suppose, that iris root powder is the only other one. We grow it here, but I did a bit of an experiment trying to make some. And of course artisanally, you stick it out in the sun in Tuscany for 20 months. And I did a kind of chuck it in the drying room for two days. And you have, what did I have? Maybe 500 grams to start with. When it was dried out and pounded down, I got a tiny, tiny amount. So fennel, the coriander, mountain pepper, everything else is grown here. Got lots of elements of the Botanic Gardens kind of history. So this lovely thing here, beautiful kind of like diamond shaped bush with these really striking red branches (laughs) and these glossy green leaves is our Tasmanian mountain pepper. Now, you can maybe see, that's right, yeah, so if you have a look, folks, you can maybe see a few of the berries developing. Now, they're not quite as developed as some of our other specimens, but they'll get a bit larger, and then they'll go this really kind of glossy, beautiful black, and that's the berries that you ate earlier, dried. Okay, Um, the leaves have got lots of these same kind of compounds in them, and have that same peppery effect, so I'm just going to have a little nibble of one.
0: And it's got that very,
3: very slight bitterness, and then just hang on for a bit. And the pepper starts to kick in And you get that tingle on your tongue
2: The leaf, is it worse? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's
3: kind of probably similar it, That was actually not too strong, that one I just had there okay, So I tend to just, just have a wee nibble okay. And then drop it
2: Oh yeah, oh, it's fresher Yeah, it's nice Okay, I'm not going to swallow
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's nice I mean, so. you can, but yeah I And mean, the tingle comes in, it's really bit, Just one of thousands upon thousands of compounds in plants That give us these flavours It's great Lovely. But also I love this is a really attractive plant in its own right. It's cool.
2: Next up, we made our way to Cannonball House adjacent to Edinburgh Castle in honour of Edinburgh Gin's Cannonball Gin, where we learnt about the origin of Navy Strength Gin.
0: Very quick history lesson. Uh, Gin, very, very popular in Edinburgh, has been for a long time. Uh, we talked about this earlier, juniper being the main ingredient. Uh, the Dutch are really the ones who originated modern gin. They named it after the main ingredient, juniper. Dutch word for juniper being jeneva, spelt with a G. We found that really hard to say, so we didn't call it jeneva like they do. We called it jeneva. We found that really hard to say when we were drunk, so we called it gin. And that's where the word gin comes from. The main port for all Dutch goods in the UK for over 200 years was leith in Edinburgh because as, sorry England, but when you're having a war with somebody, the Scots tend to trade with those people. We'll make a bit of money out of the situation. Um, So that's what happened there. So really popular in the city, but it's particularly popular with the Navy. That might surprise you because you think of sailors and you think of maybe rum well that's the thing rum was for the crew the captains the officers they wanted their own special drinks so they chose gin and that's what they had every day they had a tot of gin and we think a tot was equivalent to three of our doubles today so they had that every day on shift so that tradition carries on from the 18th century until 1970 It has a very long tradition in the navy at the same time they're keeping the gin down in the hold and the ship is rocking about at sea and the gin spills in the hold. It it spills on other things in the hold including the gunpowder and the gunpowder becomes damp, it doesn't want to fire until one admiral, an admiral Grierson, known to his friends as Groggy which is where the term Grog comes from, I'm very good in pub quizzes by the way, Uh, he has the idea if you make this stuff so alcoholic that it's actually flammable, navy strength, if it spills in the gunpowder, the gunpowder will still fire afterwards they could have just moved the gunpowder, but there we are. So, Navy Strength Gin. Lots of distilleries make Navy Strength, and really all they do is they don't dilute their classic gin as much. There's a problem with that. You're drinking a gin at a strength it was never designed to be drunk at, and usually they're quite harsh, not very enjoyable. Ours is a completely separate distillation. So we talked about the different types of juniper earlier. This has that spicy Italian juniper in it. It's got green cardamom in it. It's got Szechuan peppercorns in there, and it's got yuzu, in there. You might know yuzu from Japanese cooking. I usually describe it as a supercharged lemon. I feel like that's the kind of most accurate description. So you've got strong flavours, strong alcohol. Hit the two together. You have an undeniably strong. It is 57.2% alcohol. It has to be flammable, um, but it is very, very smooth. So we're going to try it neat. And then for me, best way to have this is in a martini. So exactly what we did before. Give a little smell, give a little sip. Let it get all around your palate, and it is strong, but the Szechuan, the Italian pepper, it's giving a lot of oil, it's giving a lot of viscosity to the gin, so it should really coat your tongue, which is why it's so good in a really gin-forward cocktail, like a martini or a negroni. Anyway, we smell, and then a wee sip. Sanchez.
2: Oh, it's nice. It's strong, but it's really quite spicy and flavorful. It's like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't sip it, but I can see why cold would be really nice in a It's not harsh.
0: So often in a Negroni, the Campari can really take over the gin. Not a problem with this. It'll just punch its way right through. That's what's so good about it as a gin.
2: We headed down High Street and onto East Market Street, where Edinburgh Gin are currently renovating some of the Old arches, which will become its new town centre distillery and visitor experience. More on that in about a year's time, but it looks to be an impressive development. The current Edinburgh Gin distilleries are across two sites in Edinburgh, at the Biscuit Factory in Leith and under the Huxley Hotel in the West End. We went along there to meet with master distiller David Wilkinson.
1: I will show you what we call the core gin botanicals. Now you probably already know is number one. Juniper is the most important botanical. Juniper is what makes gin gin. And to put that into perspective, there are 14 botanicals in our classic gin, and there is more than twice as much juniper as the other 13 put together. 70% of the botanical mass that goes into the still is juniper. That's how important juniper is. Then we get coriander seeds, uh, which I would say are in 98% of gins. That's probably 10-15% to of the total botanical mass. So coriander seeds, they are found in almost all gins. Uh, It's not mandatory to have coriander seeds, but it's certainly customary. And it can vary from probably what we do, where it's maybe four parts juniper to one part coriander, all the way up to, there's certainly some American gins use almost as much coriander as they do juniper. That's a little much for my taste. Juniper should always be the main flavor, but I think the average is probably half as much coriander as you have juniper. And they play off each other very nicely because the juniper is fresh and piney and tart, the coriander seed is a little bit lemony, it's quite dry, it's quite refreshing in the aftertaste. So those two are very very important. The third uh, most common botanical is the angelica root. Uh, The angelica root is uh, is woody, it's earthy, Uh, it adds like a nice base flavour. Unless you use quite a lot of it, you might not necessarily get very strong woody notes in the gin but it's sort of there as as part of the undertones. We have licorice root which is used as a sweetener because a lot of these botanicals that we're going through are, they're quite tart, they're quite bitter, so a little bit of natural sweetness. It's more effective than using things like sugars or syrups in the still because unfortunately they can crystallise, burn onto the still surface and you get a sort of bit of a sort of like burnt note coming through. Whereas if you use licorice root uh, they say it's actually 30 times as sweet on the human palate as Granulated sugar. I'm not entirely convinced that's true in my personal opinion, but it is a natural way to distill sweetness. And if you do taste licorice root powder, it, it's definitely sweet. Uh, and then finally, we have orris root. Uh, so, orris root we use just a pinch of, which is just as well, which is probably the most expensive botanical use. It's about £70 a kilo. Orris root is used as a fixative. Uh, it's used the same way in ginger sealing as it's used in perfume, uh, which is that it's not so much to bring its own flavour or aroma to the table, but rather it binds the other essential oils together so they don't evaporate away during the distilling process. So most premium gins will have a small amount of orris root. It's usually a sign that a gin's uh, of a higher quality. It is expensive, but it does perform an important role.
2: David showed us the two original stills, which still make small batches of their gins.
1: This is our original distillery. Uh, this distillery opened in 2014. Uh, our original two stills are Caledonia on your left and Flora on your right. Flora is the more traditional style of the two with the big helmet uh, known as the uh, Alembic style. Uh, Flora gets her name because she is the still that handles the more floral, uh, botanical recipes. Because there are two methods that we can add flavor to gin. Uh, the first is known as macerating. So, with seeds, roots, berries, anything that's got a a skin or a tougher outer shell, we want to soften that outer skin up because gin flavor is all about extracting essential oils, and the essential oils are usually under the skin. So, we will do a technique known as macerating, which is we will start with neutral spirit. Neutral spirit is like vodka, uh, it's just ethanol, uh, it's flavorless, it comes in at a purity of 96.4% and the other 3.6% is just water. We'll then dilute that down to 50, so it's 50% ethanol, 50% water and we will steep the botanicals in that overnight, which is what I'm going to be doing with the botanicals that you choose for your recipes. That will soften the skins up, release the essential oil that gives the gin its flavor. However, with some slightly more delicate botanicals, and here's an example, uh, this is lemongrass that we use In our classic gin, anything flowery, leafy, herbal—they tend to be a lot more delicate. Uh, If you steep those in the alcohol and then boil uh, the alcohol, they'll get very stewed, possibly burned. um, Lavender, for example, Uh, you'll get a very sort of like soapy aftertaste. Uh, Or our seaside gin, for example—I mean, I mean, you don't want to boil up the seaweed. I did this when I was a student in the labs, and it absolutely stank the place out. But you know, I was a beginner then, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, We use a technique known as vapor infusion for these botanicals, which means that we'll put them in a a tea bag and we'll hang them in the head of the still. So this is where florist design comes in. That larger helmet area is where we hang the delicate botanicals, such as the flowers and the leaves, to use the vapor infusion technique, because flowers and leaves the flavour all tends to be right on the surface rather than under the skin uh, and they're much more delicate. Callie on the other hand, uh, she's what's known as a lowman still so she doesn't handle floral recipes, she will do spicier recipes such as cannonball uh, which you've tried today, uh, such as our Christmas gin Uh, Callie also has a dual function, which is why she's known as a Loman still, that she can also recycle spirit. So some of the spirit that we don't collect as part of the distillation, but don't want to waste, we can actually distill that through Caledonia, remove a lot of the impurities and then recycle it back. Well, to do exactly what we're going to be doing. It's not quite pure enough that we can use it on a commercial scale, but for a one-off bottle of gin on the mini stills, or when I do product development work to experiment with recipes and we can use this to make a perfectly nice one-off bottle of gin but you wouldn't get perfect consistency because it only gets it to a purity of about 92% rather than 96%. So it's sort of like a bottle of vodka that had two or three shots of gin poured in. There's like a trace of flavour there, albeit not much. And this is what we'll be using. So a little still just like this, an electric hot plate still that makes one bottle of gin at a time. This is what we develop our recipes on. So for example, the 1670 gin that had 31 miniature distillations on a still just like this before we were happy with the recipe Uh, i think the seaside gin had 24 uh, and the classic gin which we made some small amendments to when we moved from this site to our other site the biscuit factory that was actually 38 getting that recipe perfect because this isn't our only uh, distillery now as you may have already been told this was our original site but two years after we opened this place we opened the biscuit factory on the other side of town Flora and Callie, uh, they can only make 170 bottles of gin a day. Whereas our largest still Gin Genie, she can make 1,300. So the Classic Gin, which obviously is the one that we make the most of, and the Seaside Gin, they're now made at the Biscuit Factory, as is our new Orange and Basil Gin. Uh, however, Flora and Callie are not redundant. Uh, the Cannonball and the Christmas Gin and the Botanic Garden Gin, they're all still made here. So actually two of the gins you've tried today were still made on these two stills.
2: I sat down with David to find out how he'd come to be Edinburgh Gin's master distiller and whether he thinks gin has peaked. So how did you get into your line of work?
1: I've always been something of a spirit enthusiast, uh, in particular whiskey, and I wanted to get a job in a distillery, but I wasn't sure how to go about it. So I ended up asking around, doing a bit of research, and several people recommended doing the Brewing and Distilling course at Huryawatt University, which is the International Center for Brewing and Distilling. So I went to the Huryawatt Postgrad open day, uh, met with some of the professors, I enrolled on the course, and on the course I learned the science of brewing and distilling, uh, all of the technical aspects, but as well as that, it was good for networking, it was good for getting contact in the industry. So graduated with my masters in brewing and distilling, and things, I suppose, were very well timed. Uh, I'm from Durham in North East England, and a month after I graduated, I got a call from my professor saying that a distillery was setting up in uh, the Durham area, and the owner would like to interview me. Although I went to Harriet Watt as a whiskey enthusiast, my professor gave me a very useful piece of advice that if I wanted to work in new products, product development, and be creative, whiskey is quite limited certainly certainly scotch whiskey is very limited it's it's very rigid it's very traditional there's a lot of rules gin is more liberal i think we can say and in 2012 the gin boom was really just starting so i i took my professor's advice uh, i wrote my master's dissertation on gin flavor and then i got an interview uh, with john chadwick the owner of durham distillery and I was taken on uh, on a part-time consultancy basis, Uh, I helped develop the Durham Gin recipe, I did the first few batches, once the distillery opened, I helped launch Durham Gin, but then I got a call from my other professor and he said I'm recruiting for a graduate scheme that's being run with Edinburgh Gin and I really want to interview you for it. Uh, So this graduate scheme was known as a knowledge transfer partnership, it's a graduate scheme where you have a graduate, you have a business and a university and they work together for two years and you use the knowledge that you learned at the university but you transfer it into an industrial setting and put it to practical use. So after those two years I'm happy to say I was taken on full time and I've been Edinburgh Gin's head distiller ever since.
2: So we're sitting here. It is the beginning of August. The school exam results for Scotland are out soon. If there was anyone kind of thinking, oh, I'm kind of interested in this, what kind of advice would you give someone now? I mean, where you say the gym boom was starting as you just started out, which is quite good. Obviously, we're. I don't know if we're ever going to hit a peak, but we're certainly on a kind of upward trajectory. So what would you say to anyone who wants to get into doing what you do?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I think with with the pandemic as well. Um, I don't. I wouldn't say the gym has peaked, but we may be having a plateau. I mean, gin is still very big, uh, even if it just stays at this level. There's a lot of opportunities in gin. For somebody leaving school, I would maybe say it could be too early to commit to this. I went to sit my masters when I was 29, and my original degree was actually in law. The majority of people who go to Hurry to study brewing and distilling, they do it at master's level. It is possible to do a bachelor degree there, but that does take four years and that's quite a lot of commitment. I would probably recommend taking some time to think about it. Uh, It would also give you time to see where the market lies. There's no denying that I was a bit lucky in terms of the time that I decided to enter the industry because there were so many craft distilleries setting up at that point, there were a lot of opportunities that same level of opportunity may not necessarily be available uh, over the coming years, though I, I I hope it is, but we do have to be re- uh, realistic. Nothing keeps growing and growing forever.
2: So you mentioned how you're into whiskey, but there's quite a lot of strict rules. Do you see something like that ever coming into gin? Because obviously there's quite a lot of debate with enthusiasts about what makes a Scottish gin, where your green neutral spirit's coming from, all that kind of thing. Do you see there being a point in the future where there are rules like that in place for gin?
1: If you'd asked me that question, five or six years ago, I would have said, yes, I do think gin will get some form of regulation. The truth is, I feel if it was going to happen, it would have already. The fact that gin, on a craft level, has been going for more than a decade now, and this still hasn't happened, makes me wonder if it ever will. I personally think gin could do with a little bit of regulation. I wouldn't want to lose the liberal approach, uh, the opportunity for creativity, the fact that there are so many interesting gins out there. But I do think there are some gins on the shelf that are what I would refer to as gin in name only. Um, I do think there should be some parameters set about what truly does make a gin. And I think the most important thing is that the gin should be based around juniper. And I think if your spirit doesn't taste of juniper at all, I struggle to see how it should be called gin.
2: And if you could go completely wild one day and make whatever gin you wanted, what would that look and taste like?
1: That's an incredibly difficult question <laughs> because every day, or so, or so certainly with passing seasons, there's always something else that springs into my mind. Uh, most of the gins that we have produced have been made... Based around some sort of concept, you know, be it the botanic gardens, be it a seaside themed gin, be it uh, an old tom, uh, a, fla- a flavoured gin. And there's always been some sort of like guiding, you know, this is what the gin's going to be all about. So if I had completely free reign, I would almost be, uh, <laughs> I would almost be paralysed by choice. Because there have been more than 200 different gin botanicals used in commercial production. Uh, so the options are almost limitless. If I was to have something completely free rein, I would have to sit and think about it for days, maybe even weeks. Uh, I think a lot of it would, as a lot of gin production uh, does indeed, uh, it comes down to trial and error. You have ideas, you find botanicals, uh, you, you might find alternative botanical suppliers. And until you actually get hold of these and you distill them and you taste them and you actually find out what they're all about, you can't really know. So there's, still so many potential botan- botanicals that I would like to experiment with that I would like to try distilling and sampling and yeah I still think the ultimate gin is is out there I think we have lots of really really good gins but there is always something else that you can achieve
2: and do you ever see a time where you might work with for example like Cushy Dews who's a tonic mm-hmm. in Edinburgh like do you ever see and fever she's everywhere and obviously mm-hmm. they're massive but do you ever see a time where you could work with a local tonic and do a, a sort of tie up.
1: Well, uh, we have worked with with Bon Accord tonic before. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Bon Accord's range. I think in particular it goes very well with our 1670 gin, the Botanic Garden. So uh, we do like to pair um, pair those two up. We do use Fever Tree a lot, and I know using Fever Tree is maybe you know it's a bit cliche and mainstream now. But the truth is, I do think Fever Tree tonic water is a very very good quality. I'm always open to trying other tonics. Uh, I'm happy to try them with all of the gins in our range and see if we find a perfect match. You mentioned Cushy Do's. I have met with the owner of Cushy Do's. I think the concept is brilliant. I love the fact that it's, I mean, if tonic had a legal definition, I feel that Quinine would be part of it, but it doesn't have a legal definition, so it doesn't have to be. It's almost tonic without the tonic. The truth is, I, I sat down with uh, with Andrew, the owner, and I tried Cushy Do's with several of our gin expressions, and I, ju- I just didn't think they, they were a match. It's not to say that I don't think Cushy Do's is good. It is good quality, but it's not a case of one definitive tonic that works with all of your gins yeah each gin will have an ideal tonic pairing and unfortunately i didn't think it paired that well with our london dry gins though it does pair well with some of our liqueurs
2: and can you tell us anything at all about your next release in september
1: I'm afraid not. Uh, It will be part of our experimental series. Uh, It will be number four. There will be approximately 500 bottles that will all be hand bottled, hand labelled and waxed, but I'm afraid I can't tell you the recipe.
2: That's another thing as well. Do you ever think gin's going to become like whiskey in the sense that, okay, there's only 500 bottles, therefore people might buy them, collect them, flip them, or is it just not the same level? of?
1: Uh, I think it's possible. I suppose our Experimental series is as close as you could get to collectible. I mean, I will keep one of every single expression uh, in my own collection. But I think the difference is the production process for gin is, is much faster. Uh, you know, you can make gin, rest it, dilute it, and uh, it's, it's sort of ready within about a three-day turnaround if you hand bottle it. So I don't think it's ever going to quite build up that equity that whisky does when it has rarity because it's aged for, for 50 years. You know, There's a lot, a lot of history goes into that that you won't be able to put into gin. Um, Cascade gin is a thing, but even Cascade gins, I mean, you're talking weeks, maybe months. I'm, I'm not aware of any Cascade gins that have Cascade aged for years. And I think for that reason, it's unlikely to build up that collectible value that, that was, you know the very, very rare whiskies have.
2: Which is good, because it means we can drink it all.
1: Well, exactly. (laughs) I I, I don't develop gin recipes for them to sit on shelves. I develop them for people to enjoy. And I would much rather people came to me and said, oh, I bought a bottle of your gin, I drank it this way, I made this cocktail with it, and I loved it, than it sat in a cupboard somewhere, and I hope maybe in 20 years' time it's worth 10 times the value, because I, I don't think that will be the case.
2: And do you ever see yourself going into whiskey, given your original sort of thoughts?
1: It's certainly something that I would consider. I mean, Edinburgh Gin being part of Ian McLeod Distillers, I have done some short comments at Glengoyne Distillery and at Tamdu Distillery, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But as much as I love whiskey, I think I would miss the creativity that you get when you work with gin, the chance to develop recipes and experiment with botanicals. There's, there's considerably less experimenting when it comes to whiskey. So I haven't ruled it out, but I think I'll be staying in gin for a while yet. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Thank you to all my guests on this episode and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode of Scran. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.